This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles, would you open them up to Luke? Luke chapter 2. The birth narratives of... um, in the Gospels, make the arrival of Jesus a a musical, poetic time of the year. There are four songs that surround uh, the birth of Christ. You've got the Song of Mary, which we looked at last week. We've got the Song of the Angels, which we'll look at today. We've got the Song of Zechariah, which is in relationship to the arrival of John the Baptist. And then we're going to look at next week, the Song of Simeon. So while Bing... And old blue eyes may get a lot of attention this time of year. The greatest hits are still the poetic songs recorded in the Gospels. We're looking at the shortest one today. It's just one verse. Look at it with me if you would. Luke chapter 2, verse 14. Glory to God in the highest heaven. And on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Christmas greeting cards are often littered with two words that we're going to look at today. Peace and glory. Peace and glory. See, Christmas cards with those words are vocabulary words this time of year. So we're going to look at them. What do those words mean in the context of the Christmas story? What do they mean in the context of the Christmas story? Now, some of this will be familiar to you because I preached on peace at Christmas Eve last year. Those of you with identic memories probably recite the thing better than I can. The rest of you are like, really? Is that what you preached on? It's okay. It's okay. Um, The Christmas story didn't change from a year ago. So let's look at it. I actually talked to my dad. I said, Dad, Christmas comes every year. My dad's a pastor. He's been a pastor for 42 years. So what do you do? year after year after year it's the, it's this and it's the same story i keep looking and it doesn't change he says just preach the christmas story just give it to him again give it to him again we all need it and frankly you need it too <laughs> so let's look at it peace now when you read this uh in the niv and you compare it to charlie brown christmas you might get confused I thought it was peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Isn't that how Linus' recitation of the Christmas story goes? Peace on earth, goodwill toward men? Well, um, why does it say on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests? Well, the New International Translation, uh, New International Version has it right. And it's a significant difference. Uh, the, the Charlie Brown Christmas rendering of it can make it sound like Christmas brings about world peace. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Yes, this beautiful world peace. But the actual rendering makes this peace a little more restrictive. It's peace or goodwill only to those on whom God's favor rests. And what it's saying is that there was ill will... And now with some people, there is goodwill. 
And what Luke is getting at and the angels are getting at is that the peace we are talking about is not peace between human beings. It's not peace within us. It's peace between God and us. The easiest way to remember this is by singing the Christmas classic, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. There's a beautiful line in there, peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. And there it is. It's a jubilant declaration. God and sinners reconciled. So what is this peace? It's God, at, God and sinners at war, now at peace. Reconciled. We have it in a number of other places in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 1 talks about this. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. So let me pause and ask the question. Are you at peace with God? Have you been reconciled to God? Well, how do you receive this peace? Frankly, that's the most important question you could ever ask. Everything in life boils down to that question. How do you have peace with God? Well, the real secret to receiving this peace is you've got to admit you're at war. You've got to admit that you're at war with God. If you've never admitted that, you don't have peace with God. You don't have Christmas peace. The peace Luke and the angels are talking about. Let's think about this. Think about a principle. You can only genuinely receive a gift if you admit you need it. In other words, if you're having trouble gaining weight and you're just eating like crazy, trying to gain weight, and you open a Christmas present and it's a huge book on dieting, you put the book back in the box. You say, I don't need this. If you've got a full head of hair and you open up that Christmas present on Christmas morning and it's, and it's Rogaine, you put it back in the box. I don't need this. On Christmas, Jesus brings the gift of peace with God. But in order for you to genuinely receive it, you have to admit you need it. You've got to admit you're at war with God. The reason most people don't have peace with God is because they don't believe they're at war. You might be sitting here today. You might be listening today. You don't really believe you're at war with God. But the Bible repeatedly insists we all have a hostility towards God. We all have a hostility towards God. In fact, Paul says it in Romans chapter 8. He says the natural mind, the mind we're born with, is hostile towards God. It will not submit to God. Indeed, it cannot. That's one of the most radical statements in the New Testament. It's a statement many people do not want to come to grips with. It says the primary and natural condition of your heart toward God is not one of ignorance so that your main need is education or information. 
then the natural condition of your heart is not one of indifference towards God, so that your main need is motivation. But the natural condition of your heart is hostility towards God. So your main need is reconciliation. Did you hear all that? The main condition of your heart is not ignorance. So you need information or indifference. So you need motivation. But the main condition of your heart is hostility towards God. So you need reconciliation. That's the basic fundamental attitude in our hearts towards God. See, most people think they need help from God, but they don't need peace with God. You might think you need guidance from God, but you don't need peace with God. That's missing it. Your heart, you want to know a fact? Your heart wants to be king. And because your heart wants to be king, it is hostile to God's claims of lordship over you. We all have an instinctive hostility to God's authority. We are committed to this idea that the only way we'll be happy is if we are wholly in charge of our lives. And our desire to command and control our lives leads to conflict with other people. Hostilities with God lead to hostilities with others. There is no peace on earth because there is no peace with God. Now, somebody's probably thinking, well, I don't have any conscious hostility towards God. Let me talk that out. There's more than one way to express hostility towards God. Let's think about the religious person. The religious person is often covert in asserting their independence from God. The religious person says, I'm going to obey the Bible and do all these things. And now God is going to bless me and give me a good life. That's an effort to control God, not trust him. When you obey God in order to earn God's blessing in heaven, you're seeking to be your own savior. That is a hostile strategy that does not allow God to be your savior. So the first step in finding peace with God is admitting you've been at war with God. Have you ever admitted that to him? Second step towards peace with God is turning from the things that characterize the war. Just think about warfare and marriage for a moment. Not hard to imagine for some of us, any of us. If there is no peace, what is the way you find peace again? There needs to be an admission of war. Things have not been right between us. And there needs to be a turning away from the things that caused the war in the first place. The Bible calls that repentance. Means to turn away, to go a different direction. Now, one way to admit that to God is to say, not only have I done bad things, but even the good things I have done have been done to be my own Savior and to assert my independence from my Creator and Redeemer. That is, the good things I have done have been done to put God in my debt so he'll bless me and take me to heaven one day. That's asserting your independence from God. That's warfare. Instead, you need to turn from that. 
Turn from the things that caused the war in the first place and say, God, even if my good deeds have been done to assert my independence from you in order to be my own savior, I know the only way I can be saved is by sheer grace. I know that I've done these good things to put you in my debt. Admit that to him. And say to him, look, the only way I can be saved is by sheer grace. Admitting this, confessing this, that's the route to finding peace with God. And having peace with God makes all the difference in the world. It's the difference between religion when you act like an employee and being a Christian when you act like a child of God. When you're an employee, you work for the boss. You might resent having to work for the boss, but you got to do it. You're always a little bit worried about underperforming. But once you're a child, don't worry about that anymore. You please your dad because you want to. But you don't worry about being dropped or thrown out because you're the child. Once we're at peace with God and accepted not as employees, but children, we can stop fearing his disinterest. We're his kids. You're his kid. You're his kid. We're acceptable to God in Christ. We're treated as sons and daughters. We're his kids. So he's never going to be disinterested in us. We can stop worrying that he doesn't want to hear from us. He always wants to hear from us. Why? Because we're his kids. Since we're at peace with God, we can stop fearing his punishment. We worry that when we do things wrong, especially really evil things nobody else knows about, we think God is going to bring down the hammer and really punish us for our sins. No, he's not. He may discipline us as a loving father, but he's never going to punish us for his sins. All our, our sins, all of that was exhausted on the cross. Listen, if you're a genuine believer in Christ, nothing that's happening in in your life today is punishment for sin. Many of us remember some of the dreadful things that we've done in our past and we think God is still punishing us. The answer is no, he's not. He isn't punishing you. Punishment for your sins is what happened to Jesus on the cross. He's not scowling at us. He's not slowly building up a rage towards us. He's smiling at us the whole time. He loves us because we're at peace with Him. And since God is at peace with us, we can stop fearing death. We're all aging, we're all going to die. But there's nothing to fear once you're at peace with God. That's the first vocabulary word of the Christmas story. Guys, it's the amp over here in the closet. Go turn that off if you would, please. The first vocabulary of the Christmas story, first vocabulary word of the Christmas story is, is peace. Second is glory. Now last week we looked at what it means to give glory to God. 
It means to make much of him. It means to demonstrate what a big deal we think Jesus is by frequently and thoughtfully reading his word to us. To give glory to God means turning to him in prayer, talking with others about him, letting our money flow freely to the things that God values most, lifting our voices in song to him, going about our daily work with excellence and integrity. When we do these things, we make a big deal about God. That's what it means to glorify him. We make a big deal about God. Now, as we, as we look at this song in front of us, a Christmas song, you can plainly see glory is a central feature in the Christmas story. But I want to come at this from a slightly different angle today. And this isn't me getting creative. It's just rather noticing something about the song, this song that's different from the others. It is the angels who sing the song. Angels are not beneficiaries of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. Unlike Mary, whose song we looked at last week, or Simeon, whose song we'll look at next week. Angels are never spoken of as being part of the redeemed. Jesus came as a human to save humans, not angels. So why do the angels burst into song at the birth of Christ? In a way, angels are the unbiased third-party observers to the Christmas story. But they still react to it. There's nothing in it for them, but they still react to it. They respond to it, and they do so as if it was a spectacle to behold. Glory to God in the highest heaven. It's a statement about what they see. The birth of the Messiah, the arrival of the Son of God is a glory event. It's a spectacle that's meant to be taken in like a spectacle is taken in. Let me try to push this down to street level for a few minutes. Tony Reinke's little book has been helpful in thinking through this. Let's, let's think about the phenomenon of spectacles in our cultural context. Not glasses. My glasses, dramatic scenes meant to be observed and watched and ogled. What often becomes a spectacle in our modern world today? In an outraged society like ours, spectacles are often controversies. The latest scandal in sports, deflate gate. Did Tom Brady deflate those footballs or not? Everybody knows the truth. <laughs> Entertainment. Politics. As the speed of media grows faster and faster, the most minuscule public slip of the tongue or passive-aggressive celebrity comment or hypocritical political image can become a spectacle. And often the most viral social media spectacles are spicy tales later exposed as groundless rumors. A spectacle can come packaged as a brilliant photograph, an eye-catching billboard, a creative animation, a witty commercial, music video. It can be an advertisement, a talk show, a sitcom. Spectacles are ambitious video game landscapes, network television series, blockbuster movies, horror films, sports clips of an athlete's glory or injury. Spectacles can be accidental or intentional. Anything that vies for our eyes, a historic presidential inauguration, a, a celebrity blooper, an epic fail, a prank, a trick shot, a hot take, a drone race, an esports competition. Spectacles can have more grisly origins. 
a teen suicide on Facebook Live, a public assassination, a police shooting video, a traffic footage of a deadly accident. Some spectacles draw us together in regional unity, like cheering for a local sports team. Others bring us together disconnectedly, like watching a movie in a theater. Some spectacles draw us together in small groups, like projecting movies on a TV in the living room. Some spectacles isolate us, like streaming Netflix on our iPad, scrolling social media on our phone, gaming on a solo device. You get the picture? There doesn't seem to be anything we can't make a spectacle out of. Why are we spectacle addicts? Why are we spectacle addicts? Because we are hardwired with an unquenchable appetite to see glory. Our hearts seek splendor as our eyes scan for greatness. We can't help it. One pastor put it this way, the world aches to be awed. That ache was made for God. But we seek it in movies instead, in entertainment, in politics, in true crime, in celebrity gossip, in warfare, in live sports. We have an unquenchable appetite to see glory. So the angels, the independent, unbiased, third-party observers to the birth of Christ, look into the birth of Christ and see glory. The angels find the birth of Christ more riveting than the latest viral social media post. Forget that, they say. There's more to see here. Why? Right before the angels burst into song, they announced something to the shepherds. You see it in verse 11. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This title, Messiah Lord, was used exclusively of Yahweh in the Old Testament. That is, the God who spoke and created a universe too vast to measure. The God whose breath converted the dust of the earth into an incredibly complex life form even the best doctors find baffling at times. The God who parted the Red Sea and caused the sun not to budge for 24 hours. The God whose presence was so lethal only the high priest had access to it and that only one time a year following meticulously very specific instructions. The God who has made good on every promise he's ever made. That God has come in the form of a newborn baby lying in a feeding trough. That is glory, a spectacle to behold. Every so often at Christmas, we hear about a wealthy business person who has gone and served at a soup kitchen. 
we hear about a very successful athlete who spends some time on Christmas Eve in the children's hospital. Right? We get these, right? We see all this stuff. It pops up. And what everyone says what? Oh, that's great. That's amazing. That's cool. The CEO of this vast company serving in a soup kitchen. This athlete, famous athlete, in the children's hospital on Christmas Eve. Of all days, on Christmas Eve. And it is amazing. But now see what this angel is saying. The God who made you, the God who gave you your DNA, the God who woke you up this morning, who has sustained your life, that God in the person of Jesus stepped down into time, making himself accessible. It's a spectacle. And if that wasn't enough, this Messiah Lord, Yahweh, come in the flesh to dwell among us is Savior. This is what he's come to do. This God who has always existed and never been discontent. This God who has always existed and never been unfulfilled. This God who has always existed, always been happy, and has never needed anything. This God has come in the form of a newborn baby to save his people from their sins. The angel's response to this spectacle vividly portrays to us this salvation plan is no ordinary feat. You know, when I take my car into the garage to get fixed, the guy behind the counter and the technicians in the garage do not put together a celebration like that of the angels as a way of portraying to me the significance of, of, of their feet in fixing my car. When the army of roofers came over this summer to replace the, the hail-damaged shingles on my roof, they didn't enter with fanfare. When complete, didn't do cartwheels in the front yard celebrating their accomplishment. By comparison, there's nothing to see here. What is the magnitude of the angel's pronouncement in song? Tell us about the significance of what's taking place. I want you to think about that. Think first about the magnitude of the celebration the angels are engaging in. What would that have been like? Countless angels lighting up the sky. All in loud voice declaring this song, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those in whom his favor rests. If you had no idea, no idea about the unfolding story of God's plan of redemption in the Bible, you had no idea and you stumbled upon this, what would you think? You would think, something huge is happening. Something huge. I've never seen anything like this. What is the magnitude of the angel's pronouncement in the song? Tell us about the significance of what's taking place. The arrival of the Messiah Lord, Savior, is a spectacle that outshines and outclasses the most impressive YouTube video athletic accomplishment or viral social media post. It is a spectacle more riveting 
than any spectacle your eyes have ever fixed their gaze upon. So this Christmas season, take it in. Stand in awe of it. Be mesmerized by it. And if you're not, ask the Lord to show it to you again. Let's pray. And I wonder where you're at with it. Is the Christmas story something that feels old and stale? Like we've done this a thousand times before. In these moments, would you just pray and ask the Lord to give you the same eyes the angels had when they burst into song at this spectacle? Your heart aches for glory. And many of us run around frantically week after week looking for it. But God constructed your heart in such a way that it will not find satisfaction in any glory event, but His. who are we that you would be mindful of us so mindful in fact that you would send your only son the son of God in the flesh to live among us and die a sin cursed death who are we more importantly who are you that you would do this. Christmas gets mundane quickly, and so we need your help in seeing the significance of the Christmas story. So we ask for it. Help us stand in awe of it. Father, I pray for those taking in this service who do not have peace with you, those who are still at war with you, those who have not truly bowed the knee and surrendered to you. So often we need to be shown our true condition before you. We don't know what it is naturally. We have to be shown. I pray that you'd show it to them. Convict them of their need to repent. To turn away from how they've been treating you. And turn towards a life characterized by humble submission and trust in you. And 
Lord, I pray that as this Christmas season unfolds, we would take in the significance of the arrival of Messiah, Lord, Savior, for the spectacle that it is. It is meant to capture our imaginations. We're meant to think about it. We're meant to be distracted by it in our day-to-day routines. I pray we would be. This is the point of Christmas. And we remind ourselves of it now for the sake of Christ's fame. Amen.